Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We are a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I am your co-host, Brent Hinson. Welcome you in for another fantastic episode today where we're going to focus in on a community within law enforcement and first response that we really haven't dedicated a lot of time to yet, but it's a group that plays a vital role and often are the unsung heroes when it comes to public safety. And those are the men and women who serve as 911 telecommunicators. Our guest today is going to help kind of navigate us through that world of telecommunications. But before we get too far along, I must bring in our host, a well-read individual with an undying love for the band Air Supply. He is Mr. Michael Warren. How are you doing, Mike? Air Supply is top of the charts. Those guys are the bomb. I would never peg you for an Australian pop band, but whatever. <laughs> it's too late to back out it, of it this. It is what it is. Talking about an eclectic <laughs> taste in music. Uh, I mean, we talked about Fat Boys, and now we've made the transition to Air Supply. You just never know where the conversation is going to go on this podcast. You never know. Yeah. You never know. I'm excited about this episode today because when I began my law enforcement career, I actually began as a dispatcher. And granted, that was a long time ago and we'll discuss that in just a second but i'm excited about it because they truly are uh, in many cases the unsung heroes in the first responder profession so what, what can you tell us about our guests that we have on today well i first met our guest today about a year maybe a year and a half ago when he came into the virtual academy studio in martin tennessee to teach several courses directed towards the 911 telecommunications community now one of my roles within virtual academy in addition to being on this podcast is working behind the camera to record and edit some of these courses now a lot of times these recordings can go on for five six seven hours at a time so naturally uh, that process can be tiring when you're you know, monitoring the camera and listening to the audio. But that was never the case with our guest today. He spoke intelligently about the struggles of those working in 911 centers by sharing personal stories and by being open and honest. He's the co-founder of the 911 Training Institute with his sister Deborah and his wife Linda. He holds a Master of Arts degree in Clinical Psychology from Wheaton College and a Bachelor of Arts degree in Psychology from Michigan State University. He is also the co-editor of the book, The Resilient 911 Professional, A Comprehensive Guide to Surviving and Thriving Together in the 911 Center. It is my pleasure to welcome Mr. Jim Marshall to the podcast. How are you, sir? I'm great. And it's good to be with you again, Brent. When we were together in the studio, I just want to say, sometimes the folks behind the camera, you know, they're just trying to do their job, but we had great collaboration and it made it better, I believe. And thank you. Thanks for being here and let me come in and uh, to Mike as well. And before Mike takes over, I just have to say something. During your presentation, you talk a lot about your sister, Debbie, the dispatcher. And I, over the past month, Month, have been emailing your sister and she is kind of like a quasi celebrity to me because I've heard you mention her so much that it's been really cool to talk to her. <laughs> you know what? I have to apologize. We're going to have to set you up with a conversation with Debbie, the dispatcher, my sister, because the Deborah you've been speaking to, we Oh, that's you. not the Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different Deborah. <laughs> oh, we got well, you, man. We got uh, you. Well, I, the Deborah I've been talking to 
a very pleasant yes. uh, uh, woman. So oh, yeah. I, I don't want to awesome. downplay that at all. Yeah, she's awesome. No, but we'll set okay. it up to have a little combo with <laughs> the dispatcher. Because she, she, in my heart, in my mind, she's a celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means. I mean, she hates that whole idea of that. I just am grateful to her. She brought my backside into this. and I never thought I would end up in 911 this way. Well, I saw Deborah and thought, that's Debbie the dispatcher. <laughs> no. All right. Hit the well, then I'll bow one. out and let Mike take over now. <laughs> All right. Hey, hey Jim, I, I do appreciate you being with us today. I have been excited about this conversation because I believe that this uh, part of the 911 first responder world is incredibly important and so overlooked. But I, I have mm. to ask you, and I ask most of our guests this, based upon your background, how is it that you came to be involved in the 911 community. I'm gonna assume that you didn't go to get your graduate degree with 911 in mind. I confess that's not the case. You know, anybody who is involved somehow in 911 will say there ain't no front door to 911 to come into it as a profession. Folks usually hear about it from a, either dad was a cop or their, or their husband's a firefighter or whatever. For me, I had a sister, Debbie the, <laughs> the dispatcher, who Brent Spoiler. has known for so long now. <laughs> so I was minding my own business. I was in graduate school in, uh, in uh, clinical psych, as Brent mentioned in the introduction. And, you know, my sister and I began talking about this new job she had taking these emergency calls before there was even three digits. And so she said, why don't you come on over to the township police department and hang out? Cool. I can do that. She's like, yeah, sure. Show up. So I showed up, went down the dark hall into a dark little cave of a room. There was a table with an IBM Selectric. If any of your listeners can remember that, they're as old as dirt (laughs) (laughs) as I am. Anyhow, there was an IBM Selectric and there was a there was a phone with a spongy thing on it that you, you know putting you rest your neck on because there was there were no computers. There's a box of cards and there was a table full of all the crap you shouldn't eat and want to eat. And uh, that was nine one one before the three digits. And I sat down and she schooled me. Basically, she blew my mind because there was no training, there were no SOPs, there were no protocols, there was nothing. And the idea was, and some of your listeners will, will remember this. The idea was, yeah, any chick can answer a phone, you know, any chick can answer a phone. The real actions happen in the field until the officer gets disciplined or injured and they sit their butt in front of that mic and, and realize they're wetting themselves yeah. because of the, the challenge of the job. You know, I was blown away because, you know, it went from two silly calls. I mean, not silly. They were important to the, the caller, but like you you send him right now because I'm going to kill my neighbor's dog. He's peeing in my yard again. And I'm like, really, Debbie, this is it? And then a little call from a little old lady, like my garage door is stuck in the up position kind of a thing. I, I mocked her about it being government employment and easy work at night with the rock and roll playing in the background, you know. <laughs> and then the next call was hot domestic violence. And it blew my mind because what she did with no training, self-taught, she de-escalated before the word was even used. And I thought to myself, wait a minute now, how did she learn to do this? And what impact does this have on her psychologically? Here I am, a student you know, of psychology, preparing to do clinical interviews and all this. We were talking about differential diagnostics, schizophrenia versus bipolar disorder and all this stuff. She spins around in her chair. When that scene had settled, she settled that down within about four minutes. When they rolled up on scene, Mike and Brent, I'm pretty dang sure that what the officers experienced psychologically was different than what she experienced hot and fresh in her ear. So now flash forward to answer your question uh, directly. 17 years, I was a, what we call, now you can splice for language here, but there's a technical term that we use in the responder fields, uh, which we also tend to use as clinicians, and I was a shit magnet. And you know, I mean, what does that mean? It doesn't mean the people I served were, were feces. It means I got 
a bizarre, inordinate a number of people in my caseload when I started on the inpatient side as a psychological evaluator and then treating people on the outside who had PTSD, where there's PTSD unresolved, there's suicide risk related to unresolved depression, related to this PTSD sucks, and we don't know what to do with it. And so, you know, either you learn to swim or you drown, and I learned to swim, and that's how I ended up becoming a trauma therapist along with marital therapists. In 17 years, and my sister calls me, very proud of her. She was a pioneer in Michigan. She started the police academy through one of our community colleges, and that's still running, rocking it very well. And she called and said, you got to train 911. I'm like, what do you mean? She says, no, you got to train 911. We need you. We need people who can understand us, who can teach resilience. And I, I refused because I said, I'm not going in there like Mr. Cycle Babble Woohoo to, to preach to 911. I've never sat at the console. That's disrespectful. And my sister said, I'll tell you what's disrespectful is when your sister asks for help and you say no. You're going to train my people or I'm going to break Ouch. your arms. <laughs> she denies any threat me, by the way. I've never met your sister, but I believe you. <laughs> well, I'm stretching on that last part. But anyhow, I mean, you know, it's like a lobster trap or Hotel California. Once you enter into 911, it's really hard to leave because these people, and this leads back to you and then I'll zip my lip. High value, high risk, highly undervalued. Not because anybody's trying to diss them as a population. The last thing 911 pros want to be is victims. So they're not whining about that. But I realize they do desperately need help. And I believe there's something called 911 psychology, and that's what we do. You wrote in your book, you sat in with your sister, this was 35 years ago, but it seems like we are still trying to educate the public as to how difficult this work environment can be, and even to some, validating the job. Why? Why do you think that is? It, it's really understandable. Uh, first of all, dispatchers are invisible to the public. They call and they don't have a sense of what that person is, what their role is. They just want people on scene. And so, you know, they call and they're demanding that the dispatcher is the invisible conduit. And so unless people have been strategically educated about 911 or have had a phenomenal experience where they realize through the course of those minutes the unique role that that dispatcher had, for example, assisting with CPR right through the phone and helping save their child, They'll never forget that person, and rarely they'll show up at the station or at the comm center with a, a plate of cookies. But for the most part, unseen, it means they don't exist. The other thing is there's this idea among even psychologists before thinking about this more deeply, that if you're not unseen, you're not there, therefore you can't be psychologically impacted. And then there was this idea that 911 just sends the real help. They're just gathering some data and sending it, the real intervention is happening out there. They don't understand the reality that from the very first second, dispatchers, when properly trained, are intervening in real time. You don't, you're not going to wait for medics to get there before you activate CPR. That's the dispatcher that's doing it. It's the dispatcher that is helping the person who calls and says, I got a 30-30 and I'm going to take myself out right now. You can't wait for field to get there. And so they're the very first responder. But the public doesn't understand that unless they've been in that jam. I like to refer to dispatch as the first first responders. If we look at that, and we'll talk about the first responder status here in a minute. When you were describing this dispatch center that you went into with your sister, by the way, Brent, his sister mm -hmm. actually dispatched in the county in which I work. Oh, no kidding. Absolutely. Uh, but huh, um, Small world. But <laughs> as you described it, though, this dungeon-like dark area with this apparatus man yeah. it's like my first day on the job when you were describing it because in so many places they are right? dungeons aren't you they? remember you sat oh, the console yeah, i set the console back when we had the cushion on the the phone handle where you actually had dials that you, yeah. you i mean uh, little buttons that you pushed and, and all this I, I just i just remember it and if you're old enough to remember this you are definitely 
old as dirt, but do you remember Adam 12? Remember that show? And the oh intro, it's going to It is. There's a part of the dispatch center and, and you have this D card, this little card that once the, the, the information's written down by the call taker, it goes down this little, I don't know, conveyor belt. And then it's, it goes to the proper, proper area to be dispatched. I think that people look at that. It's just a modified front desk in their mind. Right. That's not what a 911 center is. Yeah. And we can get into this more heartily uh, later if you want. But the idea that it's clerical, it's just, you know, God bless the public. They just don't have the recognition that this is anything but clerical. It's highly professional work. Uh, we've underprepared folks, undertrained them to do this. And, you know, I think if I think about, you know, your law enforcement officers, your your field responders listening right now, it's those who've been at it for a long time. If they've, you know, those who have been through a situation with shots fired or, or with other kinds of horrific stuff on scene or uh, mass casualty events or whatever, you know, the they recognize uh, that their dispatchers are, you know, incredibly important to them. And yet, as we move forward, there is more and more a disconnect. In the old days, you know, the, the cops would come into the comm center and they'd shoot the crap with each other. They knew each other in your day, right, when you came. But now there's a, much more of a disconnect as we go to consolidated PSAPs, et cetera. But it's more critical than ever. We can assume we know what's happening in 911, and this is for your field responders as well. This would be very important that we support their awareness right now of what's been taking place, what's happening these last few years among the dispatchers who they're counting on to help save their lives and to help keep them safe and everybody on scene. And going back to Brent's question, I think one of the reasons why they don't get the recognition they deserve is because by and large, they do their job so well. It's so seamless and it's done so professionally. It's like watching a professional football player. They do things that if I tried to do it, I'd end up in the emergency room. They're so good at it, it looks easy. And I think that's the way a lot of our 911 folks perform their job. It's like a good offensive line in football, you know, they keep the quarterback safe. That's true. Yeah, we're not we're not high-fiving the linemen every time that they do their job. And, you know, you try to compliment 911 and they're very uncomfortable. I tell them they suck at taking compliments because it's like, well, that's just what I'm paid to do. Like, the, the head down. And, and, you know, the other thing is on this is that our field responders... You know, they expect them to do what they're doing, and they should expect that. Our field responders know, especially over the last, you know, two years here, that when is the biggest recognition going to take place? When you've screwed up. And so, you know, we've, we've now got a nation of law enforcement officers who are under high scrutiny. Okay, I get that, and there's very important reasons for that. But we've got the vast majority doing tremendous work day in and day out. And our dispatchers have been doing that. Now, we have a historical thing, which is pretty funny. Check this out. My sister, Debbie, the dispatcher, is married to Ron, the firefighter. Oh, boy. And, and you know, <laughs> it, most dispatch centers, that, right, they're dispatching several different police departments, several different, or, or maybe one, but several different fire departments. And all of the responders want it their way. It's kind of like, what do you want? Oh, you're, oh this burger comes without pickles, but extra mayo and in terms of what they want in a response and how they are going to get it. So often there's contention. And this here's my bottom line on this, but there's contention there always. And that's part of the, the deal and the relationship. So they may be underappreciated, but when it comes down to it at the end of the day, all it takes is one massive event, one major event when life is threatened in the field. And they all know 
that they are brothers and sisters. They can criticize each other. They can pick on each other, but don't you mess with my family from the outside. Take a little bit further because you and I, we talked the other day before this recording, we, we yeah. talked about the problems with perception and that perce- that problem with perception is both internal and external. And I told you the story about uh, the young lady that I met down in Indiana at a class that I was teaching. She's a police officer, but mm-hmm. she started her career uh, in dispatch. In fact, she loved dispatch. She said, Mike, I had never, yeah. ever had any desire to become a police officer. And I, she goes, the mm-hmm. thing that bothered me was I, I found out about dispatch through a citizen's police academy. And she goes, you know, that's a job I think I'd like. So she calls up to the county dispatch center and she goes, hey, uh, what does it take to become a dispatcher? And she was thinking, boy, you need this certification, this certification. And the answer was a pulse and an application. And that's from somebody within the agency that has negative impact on dispatch as well, doesn't it? It, Well, it does. Now, here's the deal. It's a very complex situation right now because we have. So I got back from El Paso, Texas, a couple weeks ago. They are 55 percent. Right now, they're staffed at 55%. Now, what does that mean? You have people calling in, and how do you keep up with all those calls? How do you dispatch all that and be able to do it with excellence when you are running? You got people who are, who are doing, you know, seven, 16 hour shifts in a row or more. They are burning out. So, under that, when you look at the need to staff, because we have a national epidemic in terms of, I should say, in terms of staffing, it's a crisis. And it's been that way for quite a while now uh, through COVID and coming out the other side. It's far worse. So, originally, the idea was, as I said, any chicken answer phone. Just get a warm body in there. If there's a if there's a pulse and a temperature over eighty five, pull them and put stick them in the chair, because it's, you know the perception was is it ain't complicated. Well, it's entirely false. So I would say that there most all of our centers across the country, the the majority are keeping a high standard for who they hire and how they train them. There's a very high standard, and that's increasingly so. However. It's not where it needs to be in many of our comm centers because federally they're not even recognized as emergency responders. And that impacts funding, recruiting, what we can pay them. How do you get the people you need and sustain that workforce if you're paying them 40%, 30% less than they should be paid? So all this ties together. And I think this impacts our field responders should be very concerned about this because they're depending on these dispatchers to be qualified. I was just in another comm center this last week. I won't say where it is, a different part of the country. And they're dealing with that problem of new people coming in. And some of them are not the quality in terms of capabilities for this job that they need to have. So they're going to have a higher washout rate. And then you're you're left with more cost because it costs a lot more to find them than to keep them. So it's it's complicated. We know the standard of training needs to be very high, but it's hard to find the people now who can do it. Let's put this in perspective for our listeners if we can. Uh, you're talking about El Paso. They're operating at 55% capacity, okay, as far as terms of staffing. Yeah. My, my 11-year-old yeah. plays tackle football. It's in the bylaws that if their roster gets down to like 13 people, they cannot play because yeah. it's no longer safe for them. It, that's a higher percentage of the roster than, than what we're talking about. A, a life-saving profession can operate at lower staffing than an yeah. 11-year-old football team. They cancel the football games because it's not safe. We can't cancel the calls in our dispatch center. Exactly. That has to wear on dispatch. I mean, it would wear on anybody 
if you're operating at that capacity yeah. for any length of time, wouldn't you? So what we know is it, pre-COVID, if we go all the way back to 2015, that was the first solid study after a preliminary study about the impact of this work on 911 in looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. And let me just say, really make an important caveat here. 911, as our field responders, are the last people that want to, I made some reference to this, that want to be perceived as victims or poor us or whining and needing ideal, perfect, everything. No, no, put on your big girl pants, big boy pants. They are mentally tough. They are psychological gritty as a workforce. Having said this, what we know is when we don't attend to the psychological stresses of a job, it ends up wearing even the best people down in many cases. And that's why, without going into more detail, we look at our medics, some of the most grizzled, tough medics, law enforcement officers. What happens? The people we thought were doing fine could handle it, end up taking themselves out, end up with addiction, with their lives crashing. And, and so we have equated toughness with not needing resources and training and equipping preventively in resilience and then attending to them with the resources they need, like peer support. So all that is to say that we've known since Michelle Lilly, a wonderful colleague of mine, we've worked, she uh, and I did chapter four, which is talking about her research in 911. And she identified along with co-author that 24.6% of our telecommunicators had signs and symptoms consistent with the diagnosis of PTSD. That's out of 808 nationwide. Very good study. Well, she and Pam Apoka, a now professional and myself, conducted another study, which has not been published yet, a smaller study. And I'll give Michelle credit for that as the lead on this. Our data were showing more like 29 plus percent with PTSD. And I'm not talking about having a little distress now and then. We're talking about the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. So what are we saying about this? What's driving that, Mike? We have radical problems of sleep deprivation. The typical dispatcher in the United States of America, I hate saying this, but I know this because I bet my automobile in the title of my automobile classes, I'll throw my keys down in classes over thousands of, of dispatchers I've trained. And every time the answer comes back the same, I write it right on my palm, count one, two, three, and they shout out four to six. They get four to six hours of sleep per 24. Now, when you have that radical sleep deprivation, what's that about? The impact of cortisol, stress hormones. Well, gee, they're not unseen. Oh, yes, they are psychologically. So then what happens? You have greater risk of chronic stress, physical illnesses, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, everything, because sleep is the fuel that we need, and their sleep is radically impaired. The fact that we have understaffing, I want to be clear. I don't like just talking about the problems when there are solutions available. We have solutions. And so in the old days, we just talked about everything that sucked, but we, we didn't have anything to do about it. Now there's a lot we can do about this, and we're advocating for a lot of very evidence-based, solid solutions. That's the problem. Too often we ignore the solutions. Well, right. I mean, here's the thing. If you look at the history of, of emergency response in our military, you go through hell. It's awful. It makes you sick, right? And, but you want to forget it because who wants to live it more? And if we don't know what the solutions are, then we just stuff crap. We stuff it because it doesn't make sense to keep thinking about what we can't solve. But the vast majority, I would predict 90% of our responders, that's probably conservative, don't even know you can fully resolve post-traumatic stress disorder. So, you know, there's a lot that we can do about this, but we have to help them know what the solutions are. We A couple of episodes ago, we talked to uh, Robert Greenwood, who had a career in corrections and the things that he described yeah. to him his daily job seemed normal, but as he described it to us, it seemed abnormal. And I would assume it was the same for 911 dispatchers where one minute yeah. you're taking a dispute about your neighbor and then the next minute a child is drowning. 
That's that right. is an abnormal situation to be in. And then you have to shift, go home and lead a normal life. And that's got to be difficult for those folks to open up and say, I need to talk about this. This is a powerful statement, Brent, that you've just made. And here's how. There's this idea that if your job is consistently abnormal in terms of the psychological exposures that you experience, you know, if you're going in house fires a lot, you know, and if you're seeing a bunch of people who've passed and a lot of gore and smelling it, then that's part and parcel to your job. Well, then that's your norm. So live with it because it's your norm. I mean, you should be able to adapt, revise and overcome. Absolutely. Like I said, our responders, generally speaking, mentally tough and gritty. However, the fact that it is normal, what does that really mean to the, well, first of all, we know and take, you know, Navy SEALs, it's classic. Everybody knows what a Navy SEAL is. We know that we can help people reach a level of tolerance physically and psychologically that seems beyond human ability. And it is a matter of training. What we do is train people to be able to handle, manage, tolerate more. We don't say make emergency response an easier profession. No, it is what it is. But we have to equip them with the resources that meet the level of psychological and psychophysiological demand they're placed under. So what we have done in the past that we didn't know what to do to help these people. So what do we do? They offered each other just kind of organic support. When you're hosing down, pulling together hoses, when you're in between calls or runs or for our dispatchers, you know, they shoot the crap with each other and then they move on. With dispatch, there's far fewer breaks, far less time to do that. But they were on their own saying, well, this is just what we all do. So they show up at the bar, they drink, you know, four or five beers, they go home and, and uh, try to sleep and they get up and do it again. But what that resulted in, a frightening rate of suicide per unresolved PTSD, and when it's not just the diagnosis, it's the relationships crashing. And that doesn't mean everybody experiencing that. But for every one of our responders who has a label of PTSD, thank God when they get it, we've got multiple who are sub-threshold, but still impacted by this. And here's a bottom line. So I've been advocating for formally since 2010, and, you know, in terms of federal and national, we have to be a strategic and I see what you're I'd be really interested in feedback we get from your, your viewers, your listeners on, on this. We have to be just as systematic and strategic in the way we empower, equip and help our responders manage their psychological stress, our, our 911 professionals, as we are in the equipping for handling the public and, and assisting our field responders. We are highly technologically, intellectually advanced in terms of and with systems and SOPs, protocols, equipment to be able to, to really optimize what we do for the public. But we have to be just as dedicated to that kind of systematic response for the well-being of these people of our now pros and our other responders. I think part of the problem you've already alluded to was the lack of recognition. And I get it. They don't want to be recognized. They're not pining for, for this type of thing. Right. But this formal recognition as a first responder, we don't have that on the federal level. In many yeah. cases, it's had to be fought for in some of the states because once you get that status, in many cases, it's much easier to provide the support to them that they need. Oh, absolutely. And so it, has it been your experience that when it's not recognized properly, dispatch isn't involved in things that are good for healing, like after action reviews? debriefs, you know, hot washes, all those type things. They're not invited to the mm -hmm. quote unquote party because they're not seen as an intricate part of the incident. 
Uh, yeah, I, I think the, you know, there are a few different things there. One, in terms of not being recognized as emergency responders at the federal level, right? That's about a lack of knowledge and understanding about what they really do. And absolutely, what does it affect? Well, it affects, first of all, uh, the way we d- we design the job, the training, and pay people. And how can you recruit people competitively when they're not being paid as they should be? So that's a big, big factor. The other thing is, you know, in terms of, of how it is that now when pros were not historically invited, to uh, critical incident stress debriefings, right, and, and other uh, after-incident support services. I really believe that was not by uh, any intent or, or disrespect from the leaders of our agencies, you know, the, our uh, police departments, et cetera, when they would hold these debriefings. The folks just did not think about the psychological impact on the dispatcher because it makes sense as lay people to say, but they're not on scene, so what's the problem? We've needed to embed psychology with 911 and to help educate the rest of the field response community, just as we needed to embed psychology that really gets our military with our military to help build out the supports they need. As that happens, as our leaders, I've worked with a lot of uh, leaders of our police departments in supporting their personnel. When they learn and realize, and some of them know because they've been in the comm centers enough, they sit with these sit-alongs and they figured this out on their own way before I was involved, or they, you know, they have a relative who's been number one. But when they realize the psychological impact, most of them step up and make sure their people get the rest of the resources they need. But we have to be clear with what those are. Well, I, I just want to bring it. So we just started a new series at our church called Find Your People. It's all about this notion of being in a community setting. And one thing that our mm-hmm. preacher said that really resonated with me is that when you open yourself up to be vulnerable, there is a fear involved of what will people think of me? Will they think less of me? Yeah. Will they lose their respect for me? In actuality, though, we all struggle. So uh, while a lot of us hold back because we don't want to be seen a certain way and we do this out of fear, it's when we let those walls down, we find commonality with others. Do you find that that folks within the 911 community are allowing those walls to come down or is that still a struggle? So, you know, if you think about the 911 family, right, it's a subculture of the emerge, the rest of the typically traditional police departments and or fire or, or combination of. So the dispatchers, and think about this, were predominantly historically female and still the workforce is probably about 75% female. When my sister, Debbie the dispatcher, Brent, <laughs> when she came in to the, that police department, she resolved in her mind she was going to be just as strong, just as tough, and show them she can handle anything that is put before her in that predominantly male workforce. Now, how did our military, going all the way back Civil War, you, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman on combat, on killing, you know, a lot of your um, law enforcement folks listening will be familiar with him. He was our very first guest, as a matter of fact. Oh, there you go. He also is a, one of your uh, instructors, like myself, with, you know, the Virtual Academy who's made his stuff available. But, the, you know, when you read uh, on killing, one of the things he says is that in the muskets, or I think it was muskets, right, to clarify if, if that was the firearm in the Civil War, a lot of them had rounds in them that were never fire when they unearthed these things folks were not shooting to kill they often were not even pulling the trigger they were faking shooting or shooting over the head because we're not designed to kill why what am i getting at because when we kill it messes us up we got to be have a lot of training in lieutenant colonel david grossman helps people handle all that here's the point what did our military do with all the pain from what they went through the survivor's guilt is just the, the rest of the trauma well they sucked it up 
What else would, did they know to do? So we call that, it's your emotional code. What you believe you should do with what you feel, with difficult emotions. It's the code you follow. We call it your emotional code at the Institute, right? It's chapter five or six in the book. And the point is this. What was the emotional code of our military and our responders historically? Three words. It was the suck it up emotional code. Well, then 911 walks into the environment. They figure they need to do the same thing. And so we have people practicing what's called psychological inflexibility. And Michelle Lilly you know, helps us understand that when we hold it all inside, we contain it all. And all we have to say is, I got it. I got it. I'm good. I'm fine. Well, then all of that energy, it's almost like, you know, atomic energy. It's you can't compress it only so much over time before it has some toxic negative impact. Impacts. Not everybody's affected the same way. That doesn't mean everybody has to talk, talk, talk everything out. But the reality is there has to be a process that involves peer support, that involves openness to getting the, the clinical help that we need, being able to, to release it, to, you know, not that everybody needs to cry. And that doesn't mean, you know, please hold while I'm in the middle of, of an event so that I can process my own feelings. We teach them to manage the distress in real time, even as they're managing a emergency response. So all that is to say, Brent, and one of the main things we work on, and one of the solutions is helping the now one family as an industry change from the old school suck it up emotional code to, yes, we will retain mental toughness and grit, but we'll also get each other's backs. It is okay to not be okay. We will seek the help we need. And that's how we're going to stay strong and tough, not by acting like we're fine. And some folks are fine, you know, but they got to know when they're not. So they'll often ask, well, how do I know when I'm not? Well, when you or people you love and trust tell you you're changing in a way that's problematic, in your health, your performance, your relationships, then you got to realize it ain't working. And Jim, you know, I, I think it's real important here to remember that we're not just talking about dispatchers, we're talking about human beings. And it's impossible That's for right. human beings to pour from an empty cup. And a lot of our dispatchers have empty cups because they haven't been cared for. They haven't had the self-care because they don't know about it. Not that they're they're trying to, to have an empty cup. It's just that they don't have the proper tools to address it. And I think one other thing that has to be addressed here too, if we look at people as people, there's this misnomer that we have a work life and we have a personal life. No, what you have is a life. What happens at work impacts your personal life. What happens at home impacts your, your work. Oftentimes, what we find is that the price is being paid at the house rather than at work. The, the failure to cope, the, the proper, because it has to be intentional. The prices are being paid there, and those prices are paid long after the career is over with. At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy, because you deserve more. And so let me shift here because there, there's also another cost that comes with failing. I like the saying, you know, we cannot give our people basic training and expect special forces results. You alluded to the Navy SEALs. They're, they're trained that they can do things psychologically and physically that they didn't think was was possible, but it's an intentional training that gets them to that point. But I think there's also a lack of an understanding of the impact that our dispatchers have on officer safety. And you and I talked about a couple of these things the other day. There was a study that was released several years ago on the power of dispatch priming. And we'll put the link to that information uh, in the show notes. 
But the study found that the way and the words that dispatch uses to dispatch our, our people on these calls for service has direct impact on the way that that call is handled. And that's powerful. Wouldn't you agree? Well, yeah. And, and this goes back to, you know, rehumanizing everybody. Right. When, when in the past, our responders, including 911, felt they had to numb themselves to be able to travel through this stuff. They're, kind of, they're dehumanizing themselves a little bit. No, that's partly really helpful to desensitize to a certain degree. But a lot of them felt they had to just kind of strip the personal side out of that to manage what they were doing. And in some cases, then the way that we're relating to the public can be dehumanizing to them as well. That's not intent and that is not across the board. So with 911, they're human beings. We talk a lot about psychophys in our courses. And what we do is we equip them to manage the psychophysiology. What does that mean? Incoming psychological. The mother's screaming. The baby's not breathing. This is right in the headset. The mother's freaking out. That activates huge distress inside of the human being. Even our, our, our toughest dispatchers feel some impact from that, right? Well, that can mess up with their ability to concentrate, to focus, to think creatively, to implement, and also to convey a tone and an energy that is really going to optimize collaboration with that caller. Why? Because they have a limbic hijack going on. Their, their middle brain is freaking and locking up the cortex, and so they're not as able to think clearly. So then what happens? The dispatcher is communicating with the field responder and with the caller. What, you know, it might be the same dispatcher doing both, or it might be you know, they split the task, but they're under distress. Naturally, that distress is going to carry... Uh, through into the field responders, and that can impact their predisposition as they relate to those unseen. So it's not only what they say, it's how they say it. And yet we can't, what we have done in the past is just say, watch your tone now, watch your tone, and make sure you follow the protocol. Easier said than done if we don't teach our people to do real-time resetting of that psychophys. That's what we do. Is that you can't place this expectation to be human with humans, support the best field response if we don't equip them to manage the distress from doing it. <laughs> you know, Jim, I think a, a very simplistic example of this that, that I, I use in, in classes that I teach is uh, most dispatchers know the voices yeah. of the people they work with on a regular basis. I mean, you call out your unit numbers, but most dispatchers yeah. don't need it. Right. Right. Until one thing happens. And that's a vehicle pursuit. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, this officer gets on the radio, oh, and yes. it sounds like a 10-year-old little kid has gotten a hold of a radio because the voice is about two octaves higher. Mm -hmm. they're, they're speaking much more quickly. This illustrates to me the power that dispatch yes. has in, in helping to control these things. Because if the dispatcher responds in kind, yep. if they're an octave higher than the officer, yeah then the officer responds even higher. Yeah. And, and pretty soon we've got this dueling banjo effect going on and all we've done is increasing stress. But if that dispatcher gets on there and says, unit calling, I need your unit number, your location and reason for stop. Mm -hmm. And the impact it. that it has on calming the professional, the officer, exactly. is it has direct impact. Our dispatchers have direct impact on the way our officers perform. And if we recognize that, then we need to do better in training. Uh, exactly. You and I also talked about an officer safety study called Making It Safer. Mm. It's one of the most recent officer safety studies, a few years old now. But uh, when I teach officer safety classes, one of the things that we talk about in there is in line of duty deaths. Mm -hmm. During this study, they found that in 70% of the calls that dispatch had additional information that was available to them that they failed to give the officer. And, and universally, we go, I knew it. I knew it. Those, those damn dispatchers. <laughs> right. they owe that, that's the response we get. But we also, the researchers go on that the officers failed to ask for. 
And the truth of the matter is, you've alluded several times to the the lack of training or the improper training that we're providing them. If we don't train them properly, how can we expect them to give out the mm-hmm. proper information? Yeah. How do they know what is needed if we don't give them the training? So if you were made the king of all dispatchers for, 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 for a month and you got to <laughs> dictate things. Yeah, exactly. How would you address that, that training gap that leads mm-hmm. to those types of things right there? Well, the first thing I would do, and I, and I would want to read that study and see what they meant by 70% of the time they had data that wasn't shared. I would really want to qualify that to be sure, because we can jump on the data. And as you said, then we got the finger pointing thing. But really, I know that the intent of all of our now on pros, I mean, there might be, as with any of our responders, a small percentage maybe who are phoning in and who are not invested at the, at the level they should be. And I would contend even among those, it's more that their give a damn is busted, meaning they're struggling with compassion fatigue rather than, you know, just they're the wrong people. Um, So having said that, that's my qualifier. Uh, What I would say is, uh, you know, I've been to a lot of our comm centers in the country. The vast majority are trying very hard to give them the best training they possibly can. How do you train people when you have such understaffing that you can't even get them in the classroom without pulling them away from consoles so they're not there to answer the call and dispatch the units? I mean, how do you literally get people in the seats for training? I have people coming into my classes where, you know, 30 people in a class, they're exhausted from working these back-to-back 16s. They're nights. Now they're in my morning class. Okay, and, and w- then what happens? They are grateful for the idea of getting trained, but part in some ways they resent even having to be in the room, and they're worried about their peers who are now doing another overtime shift, mandatory, so that this training can occur. So we've got a, we've got a log jam. So I'd say this comes back to the recruitment problem. This comes back to being a class reclassified. That's part of the issue there with retaining, with recruiting and retaining. Having said that, you know, if I'm going to talk from a position of 9 psychology, here's here's what I would say. Traditional training and including current training that's traditional uh, for 911 that's helping to optimize their performance and make sure, for example, that we need to be guided by protocols so that we're not placing a clinical or an, an otherwise type of expertise burden on our dispatchers to know all of what to ask and what to convey. When we're guided by protocols, now, hear me on this, please, because I, I know where people can go with this. This doesn't make our people robots. It's not mechanizing them. If they're properly trained and the, the assessment of their performance is not like a sledgehammer on the forehead. Having said that, it's not fair to expect non-clinical people or non-medical people to know everything to ask and then to convey the proper information to our field. They have to be properly trained. Now, that's half the training they need, though. In our model of emergency mental health dispatching, what we found in a preliminary study, now this is directly answering your question, in a preliminary study that was published in a peer-reviewed journal, in the Annals of Emergency uh, uh, Medical Dispatch, or research I should say, by the International Academies, and I was a part of uh, conducting that study, so that disclaimer we always put out there, but what we found is, is this, they need to be equipped to manage the psychological distress of what they're doing. And that resilience training has to be integrated with it because we can't expect people to remember. How do we remember to send the data to the field? Well, first of all, the protocols, if they guide us and then it hits dispatch points and boom, that data goes into CAD and it's there. That's the way it should be. But also there's a lot of information our now and pros pick up that's not on script because they're good at what they do. But working memory gets messed with by a hijacked cortex. 
So it's like, crap, I had that just a second ago and I just forgot it. Why? They're not being trained to manage the psychological distress that affects them physiologically, which impairs memory and, and concentration and performance. So in our model, emergency mental health dispatching, we do that. We integrate the resilience training into that so that they are far more apt to bring that 70% way, way down. I can't prove that. But what we do know is they their sense of confidence is increased, anxiety decreases as a result of the training and use of protocol that we built, and their sense of effectiveness across four measures improves. There are solutions to these things. It's interesting the way you put it, and it's one of my favorite quotes, and it's not an exact quote, and I've said it before on a podcast, yeah. uh, Eric Greitens in his book, Resilience. He, he spoke about too many people are looking for the stress-free life, and that doesn't exist. What we should be striving for instead is to deal with the stress in an appropriate manner. Right. You said earlier, we're, we're never going to remove the stress from the 911 center. No. It is a stressful job. What we should be striving for as a profession and as administrators and as trainers is to equip our dispatchers right. to deal with the stress in an appropriate manner yeah. because that improves the quality of their yeah. product is that what we're if we were to wrap it up real quickly completely is that is that how you describe it a absolutely if we want optimal performance from our now professionals and our field responders we must equip them with the training they deserve and it's not just do this do that it's helping them gain the mindset and the skill set that they need to do their jobs well we have incredible people gifted people committed, devoted people in our field response families. We just need to give them the equipping to the level of demand we place upon them. What has been your experience? What are some of the unique stressors that dispatchers face that perhaps mm -hmm. aren't faced in other parts of the first responder world? Right. We've identified about 12 at this point, but the, the list is growing. And by the way, when we do this, we're not competing with or saying their job is more difficult or stressful than our field responders. Our field responders have stressors that dispatchers don't and vice versa. But if we don't identify what those unique stressors are, we don't validate that there's something we need to do with them to reset that psychophys when those stressors occur. So what's an example of one of them? Well, you know, who warns and equips with information our field responders so they can prepare psychologically for what they'll encounter on scene? The 911 professional does. Then we ask, well, who warns and prepares the 911 professional for what they'll experience hot and fresh in the headset? Right? And the answer is, right, nobody. Okay, now that's not poor them. We can equip them for that, but that is a stressor. Okay, next, what about universally, we call it the big C of 911, the lack of closure. Mike, you can go back to your days as a dispatcher, you remember. And I think you mentioned that when we were talking, preparing for this, the lack of Absolutely. closure. And that matters because psychologically and physiologically, your brain and your body don't shut off the production of cortisol if you perceive the threat is still there. There needs to be some sort of closure, even if you can't get the details of how those calls ended up. You, you can create different kinds of closure, more capacity to let it go. That's one of another one, and I think your field responders should be quite interested in this one. I'll just give you one more. That's a long list. Another one is this, survivor's guilt. So a lot of our field responders, unless they've had a, a, a friendship or had the, the chance to be able to hang out in the comm center some, may not realize. Well, I ask our dispatchers all over, the, all over the country when I train, hey, what matters the most to you as a noun professional? At the end of the day, what matters most to you? And universally, they will say, Everyone goes home safe. Oh, safe. Right? See? That, there. That's it. Everyone goes home safe. What does that mean? Often our field responders don't realize their whole identity is wrapped around 
yes, they're caring for the public. They're concerned for the citizens. But those responders, they consider part of their family. They are there to protect and serve them as a responder to protect and serve the public. And when there's shots fired an officer down, it messes with them enormously. One of our dispatchers sat in a class on peer support, and we've got to equip our folks for peer support and have peer support teams in all of our comm centers or mutual aid. She said, as we were talking about, listen, you can't control. You're not God. You can't control what happens to your officers. And she put her head down, and she said, yeah. But if I hadn't sent him, he wouldn't have died. Now, that's the bottom line. And that's survivor's guilt, right? So these stressors have to be attended to. And fortunately, you know, we are. You know, Jim, there are some stories that popped into my head with just about each of those. You know, the first one you were talking about priming, who primes the officers? Well, it's dispatch. Well, who primes dispatch? I remember there's an expectation when somebody calls, the tone of voice is going to kind of give you an idea of how important, quote unquote, this call is going to be. And I remember taking a call and this lady gets on there. Oh, yeah, this is so-and-so and and I'm from the the, the kidney center. Uh, We've got a a CPR in progress. And just the way she said it, it it, like took me a second to go, wait, a CPR in progress? Listen, you got to have more emotion in your voice when we got that, because that's what primes me to get this thing going, right? Do you yeah. want fries with I mean, that? Seriously, yeah. it's like, yeah, exactly. But but the, the survivor's guilt, and, and I, I don't know this. Recently here in Michigan, we had uh, the Detroit police officer that was killed in the line of duty in his vehicle with his partner there. And rightfully so, a lot of emphasis has been placed on the impact that it's had on his partner, because I cannot imagine what it must be like for her. Oh, yeah. But what I also cannot imagine is what it must be like for that dispatcher that sent him on the call. That's it. I got to jump in here real quick, Mike. That dispatcher who goes home and has that survivor's guilt, that same day, they could have saved 10 lives. That's right. But yet they live with the one that that, that didn't survive. And and that's so, so hard to wrap my head around. You know, it's it's a difficult position for them to be in. (sighs) Absolutely. And, and and here's the deal. You know, you have you ever tried convincing yourself or somebody else who's really depressed that they're wonderful and they should be happy? Uh, they're probably going to flip you the bird. It's not that easy. There are certain presets that we have that tell us that we should be a certain way when certain stuff happens. We condition and nine one professionals deeply condition themselves that that they must protect their field responders. What we do talk about, Brett, I don't want to pull us too far into this, but I urge them to change on a visceral level the best they can over time and in our training. We don't save lives. And I, I speak to all of our responders this way, and, I, and with all due respect, we help save lives. Why? We are dependent on others to do it. It's not all just up to us. But here's the problem. On the swag, if we say we save lives, well, then what, is, what happens to the dispatcher? What do they conclude when, they, when their officer dies? I failed at my task. And then we have a, a dispatcher, 27 years, who, who we were shooting some video just for fun in, uh, one day in training. He said, Jim, roll tape, you know, just, just turn it on. So I did, and he said, hey, he looked at it, pointed at the camera. He said, I've been at this as an officer 27 years. Now I'm dispatched because I love you guys, and I want to still serve even though I'm off the road. And I want you to know, it's not your fault. You can't, you're not God. You can't control it. Yeah, if a dispatcher is some ridiculous, wild way outside the box, could it contribute? Yes, but you know, 0. what percent of that? And what he was saying was, sometimes the bad guys just win. Sometimes crap happens. Sometimes we make a mistake. It's not your fault. And he just said, turn it off, Jim. Again, we have to be strategic and systematic as we recognize these stressors and how we come alongside our now and pros. 
we created a resource that's available on the National Emergency Number Association site, and we can make it available if you want as a link after this as well. But it's called the, the 911 Director's Post-Tragedy Care Checklist. What we lead them through is, what do we do from the minute crap happens that's massive for our people in the comm center for the next several hours, the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year to make sure we don't drop the ball with those people. And so when that happens to dispatcher, we have to have a planned response. They're not all going to have the same needs, the same impact by that event, but we have to know how to come alongside them as lay people, as peers, and as professionals. This is unique to my experience, and but it's also, I've heard it from others as I travel around the country, one of the unique stressors in dispatch is that where an officer gets one call, if, if there's a rollover act accident and somebody's been ejected, the officer gets one call right. and it's from the dispatcher. But how many calls do dispatch get? <laughs> they get all of them. That's right. And you know, it, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those things where you think it's the same call, but you have to listen long enough to make sure that we're talking about the same accident. Because theoretically, there could be two rollover accidents. And it's one of those things where where they're doing the best that they can, but they're short-staffed. It's not like when that that call comes in that there are all other calls stop. Right. And and so they're trying to deal with this stuff and sift through this information so that they can give the information out. I -hmm. found me personally, but I also found in talking to people, there's a lot of second guessing that goes on in dispatch. Mm -hmm. A lot of second guessing on what if I'd done this? Oh, what it could have should have. Or what could I have done? Absolutely. Yes. Let let me ask you this as we're wrapping things up. If you were able to get audience Mm -hmm. with the chief executive of a law enforcement organization or Mm a fire department or an EMS uh, Mm -hmm. organization, you were given a very limited amount of time. How would you answer this question right here? Okay. What makes the training that you provide valuable and impactful for our 911 dispatchers? It's built from the ground up for precisely what they do and their unique tasking as the very first responder to optimize not only what they're doing to help protect and and improve safety on scene, but to optimize their own well-being so they can do that at their highest level. And it's built on having listened carefully and been a student of 911 for many, many years. So nothing is cookie cutter. Uh, Nothing is phoned in. And we also customize the training based on the the unique situation that comm centers are in. El Paso's experience is different than, you know, somebody, uh, you know, in Florida's, um, Alachua County or whoever. So we don't just come in and do training. Also, we want to learn from our leaders what other people been through lately and make sure that we flex the training. It ain't death by PowerPoint. It's designed to relate and create experiences in the classroom where people are thinking and feeling at a fart, not like kumbaya group therapy. They're encountering themselves. They're encountering their profession at a far more uh, deeper level, and they're being equipped at a level that's pretty much unprecedented to manage what they face. We have conversations that are very, very intense and powerful in classes, and many people uh, major life decisions to get the help that they've needed. We've helped people bridge to care when they're at risk. We develop personal relationships, not to replace local resources, but to bridge them to the care that they need in their communities. And our motto is, you know, once we train together, we're now one family. You don't have to adopt us, but this is not, you know, go in, train, load a computer, take money and walk out. This is a relationship in the industry to empower them as a workforce. And so I would say to those leaders, to the executive at the center, you don't have to trust me just because of what I'm saying here. It's not a yes or no. If you want to have a conversation, I believe you're trying to work your butt off and do the very best you can for the people. You just don't know what you don't know. And our job is to help you know what you need to. 
and we're here to serve, not to act like know-it-alls coming in you know, with shiny shoes and suspenders. We're here to learn from you and to support you and empower you. So if somebody were interested in bringing you in for some training, where can they go to get some information uh, about how to do that? What's the best place to find you? Well, our website is pretty robust at 911training.net. So it's 911training.net. They can email info at 911training.net, and they can also go to Virtual Academy. They're already there, already a search around Virtual Academy, and we're trying to make it very apparent. We're there. We have some uh, premium content. If they go to the main page of Virtual Academy and scroll down, the, you'll see Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman to tip my hat to him, and then they'll see his mug, then they'll see my mug. If they click on <laughs> that image, <laughs> get it off the screen, they'll get to more information about our virtual, our asynchronous training as well, our on-demand training. And I have to give a shout out here uh, real quickly. The Resilient 911 Professional, uh, the book that uh, Brent talked about before, yeah. we're going to have a link to that. People can go and purchase it. Your co-author, Tracy Trask, uh, a shout out to Tracy. <laughs> Tracy and I uh, worked together for years and years and years. She was an excellent, excellent dispatcher. I describe people like this. If something bad were to happen to you on the road and the voice comes over the other in the line, what voice do you want it to be? Tracy was one of those voices. So I, I, I'm, I'm excited that she did some work with you. Right. I encourage you folks to go out and check out the book. We'll be in our show notes. Uh, Jim, we thank you so much for being here today. Hey, Brent, you, you and I are, are sitting behind a microphone right now. To some, sometimes it gets to be stressful. But I'm telling you what, the folks that sit behind the microphones in our dispatch centers, they endure an amazing amount of stress and they handle it with a grace and dignity and professionalism that is overlooked. We need to do a better job, both the, both as a profession and as a society in recognizing those fine folks. Yeah. And if folks are in the 911 industry and they're listening today, law enforcement, first response, they get to this point in the podcast and they say, hey, I need some help. Uh, we're going to put something in the show notes so where they can get that help. They can reach out to Jim. If they're willing to get that help, then we want to provide that resource for them. So I think that's uh, definitely important. Before we wrap up, Jim, I, I just have to say, hmm. I have to apologize. Some love to hear. I have to apologize to Deborah <laughs> and to Debbie, the dispatcher, both, I'm sure, very lovely ladies. And uh, <laughs> we, 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 we appreciate them uh, helping get you on today because with you saying debbie the dispatcher during your presentations that always stayed with me corresponding with deborah such a nice lady so you have, you have a great staff thank you so much brenton you're not the only one that's been punked unintentionally by that confusion <laughs> and uh, thanks that you're a humble guy and, and by the way you couldn't probably see brent's face here but he didn't turn shades of red he just found it amusing i think and i thank you for the privilege folks that you listen we we, ne we never know what day we're in in our life. And, you know, I believe that every day is not created equal. We need to do all that we can in the day that we have to support and serve our first responders, beginning with our very first responders. And I'm deeply concerned and, and cheering on all of those who are listening. Thank you for what you do. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of solutions here that we can leverage to, to protect and empower. So thanks, guys, for giving me the chance to, to relate to your, your folks out there. So we've got the resources for where folks can find you, Jim. Is there anything else coming? coming up in the future that you want to kind of highlight or, or point out? Um, abs there absolutely is. So look, after years of work on this, a nonprofit project from producer Conrad Weaver, this, this young man has interviewed in, in hundreds of hours of tape that will be cut. A lot of will end up on the floor. But there's a production called PTSD 911, a documentary film. I had the pleasure to be in the advisory committee for this group. And the, he is going to be interviewing. And in this movie, it's 
powerful. And it's not just, you know, let's dig through the gruesome stuff again and, and, and talk about how awful things are. It's, it's hope filled, but it is not a kumbaya. It's not some, um, some superficial treatment of PTSD. And it's also not a scared mentary, uh, you know, where it's like everybody's going to get it and then we're screwed. It's a powerful balance entry of understanding and relating to PTSD among our responders, all the different groups. And it's going to be premiering, world premiere is November 3rd, 2022 at Irving Arts Center in Irving, Texas. And it's hosted by NAMI along with others. So I just want to put a shout out. I know you can put a link to this in your notes, and then there'll be more that people can learn to find out how to do this. But this movie is part of the powerful education that we need within the industry and about our industry, about our, our humans, right, who are in the field and the very first responders. So thank you for letting me encourage folks to get behind this 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 film and, and see it and share it. Yeah. And if uh, folks want to find more information, you could always get it on our website along with uh, all the past episodes. It's right there. New episodes come out each and every Tuesday at Between the Lines with Virtual Academy dot com. Jim, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah.